The sermon text for today is the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. What a, an exciting thing to think about how much God has worked right in us and through us over these last 10 years. Would you join me in praying? As again, Sarah said earlier, we every week pray for a church. And this week, we're going to pray together and thank God for his faithfulness to us and then continue praying that he will empower us to be his faithful witnesses throughout Arizona. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible work that you have done, that Redemption Church would start from two healthy, different churches that worked alongside one another, joining together to become one, and then starting as four and then five different congregations, and now being 10 congregations throughout Arizona. We don't take that lightly. You have been faithful, and you have worked mightily And Lord, we pray that by your grace and through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will empower us to continue to be faithful witnesses through our demonstration and our proclamation of the good news of Jesus. And so even now, as we get into your word, I pray that you will use this time to help shape us and mold us to faithfully follow you and to serve you in all of life. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, at the end of that video, Neil kind of had somewhat of a question, right? Wondering what will it look like for God to continue to faithfully work through us for the next 10 years? Now consider that, consider that for your own life and for the life of our church. What do we hope to be true 10 years from now? Well, I think we could probably say a lot of different things that we would answer that would inform how we can continue to faithfully follow Jesus and be used by him. But I think fundamentally, foundationally, this phrase, right, that you've heard, you've seen on shirts and different things like that, is the idea that all of life is all for Jesus. All right, that's been our kind of marching orders. That's been the the commitment that we've had is that we would be a people where every facet of everyday life is shaped and informed by the person and work the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And that's why he came. That's what he came to establish is that because of our own sin, we wandered away from our creator and we are relationally broken from from him, from one another, from ourselves, from every aspect of life, right? We're broken and we're struggling and we're wandering and we're needy. And that he came, Jesus, and entered in to our mess, to our brokenness. And he is forming and establishing a people who will be shaped by our identity and purpose being found in him and in him alone. That's what these first five chapters of John, as we've walked through, we've seen that the main point, the big idea of John is that we would believe, trust, be shaped by Jesus. And then that through that, um, we will have full, abundant, rich, eternal life in him. 
And that's what we're going to look at these two stories as we get into this time in, um, in John chapter six. So this morning, we're going to be in John chapter six, verses one through um, 22. And then next week, we'll, we'll be going all the way to verse 59. And this is going to be kind of a two parter, if you will, because both weeks we're looking at Jesus feeding 5,000 and then Jesus walking on water. And then next week will be more of the, so what? It's, and it's a continuation of this idea of what does it mean? So you could kind of sum it up as Jesus is the bread and water of life, right? So with that, let's go ahead and dive in together and turn with me again to John chapter six, beginning in verse one. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So the idea here is that they were going, Jesus and his disciples, his followers were going on somewhat of a vacation. Okay, they needed a break. They were going away to, to kind of catch their breath, but that didn't last very long. As we see in verse two, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. So just remember there briefly that um, people are following, massive crowds are following Jesus, but it says there, John, the author puts in there that they're, they're following him because they've seen the signs that he's done. And that will be important. We'll see here in a bit, but, but it's not that they're fully trusting him, that they fully following him. They're, they're, they're intrigued by Jesus. He's done all these tricks, if you will. He's done all these miracles and they want to know more, but their, their, their appetites are awakened and it's not completely pure. Okay. So just kind of note that. And then now picking up in verse three, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand and lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Okay, so pause there for a moment. Jesus is testing Philip. This isn't, he's not being mean. Okay, Jesus isn't like the kid on the playground that's holding a magnifying glass over ants and just, you know, like trying to, trying to trick them or, 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 you know, cause pain or make them look foolish. But when he's testing, what he's doing is he's revealing what's already there. Okay, so that Philip will see and have to say what is already true in his heart, right? That's a theme that what it means to follow Jesus is that what you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, okay, would be one, would be the same thing. When you are baptized, that's what we, what we say when someone is, 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 is baptized. And we ask that question, do you believe um, in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead? Okay, and, you, and, and the answer is yes, I believe that. And, and, and I believe that and I confess that because in reality, our confessional faith is so often very different than our practical, real faith. So that's what Jesus is getting at or exposing when he asks Philip this question. And then picking up in verse seven, Philip continues. He answered or he answers him. 200 denarii, worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little. And then one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. 
but what are they for so many? Okay, now again, pause there for a moment because a couple things are going on. Okay, remember Philip was there when Jesus turned water to wine. Okay, Philip was there when Jesus healed the sick. Philip has seen and witnessed Jesus do so many things, but what is his first flinch, church? It's to go to strategy. What can I do? What, what can, hey, let's, let's get our heads around this and let's try to fix it. Let's, let's, let's go and solve this problem. And now let's not look down our noses on Philip because I want to be honest. Is that not your first flinch when trouble comes? It's mine. And I confess and I grieve over, I think it's our church's tendency as well, or it can be. And it often is that, right, just now, like something happens and all of a sudden, okay, let's scheme, let's plan, let's figure this out. I'll admit COVID has kind of um, destroyed any, any illusion that we could just, just figure things out, right? We've, we've had a sense each day. Okay, day to day, week to week, like, Lord, what do you want us to do today? What does faithfully leading your people look like today? But, but our temptation, like Philip, is to forget what we've seen Jesus do before and to go right to strategy, problem solving. But then Andrew says, well, there's this boy who has five barley loaves and two fish but what are they for so many? Now, those are things that we would just skip on. If you've ever heard this story, you, you, you may have. This is actually the one miracle that is recorded in each of the four gospels. Jesus feeding 5,000 is the only one that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So um, even if you're not familiar with church or you haven't been around a lot to that, you've probably heard this story before, but we skip over some things that that, that we would, would otherwise miss. John, the author, intentionally puts in that these five loaves are barley loaves and there are two fish and this boy had them. So the fish that he's talking about, I think of like tuna steaks, you know, salmon, like, oh, sweet. Like that's, it's more like sardines, little tiny fish. And that's connected to what kind of loaves of bread this guy has. So this young boy is very poor. How do we know that? Because he has barley loaves. Only poor people would eat loaves of bread made out of barley. If you had two denarii to rub together, you would use some kind of different bread. It's like this. I was thinking about this earlier, that if you were asking someone to tell you about their childhood and, and about what kind of parties they held, and they went out of their way. Like for me, if I went out of my way to say, yeah, we had Dr. Skipper there all the time. And you're like, what? And you'd be like, Dr. Pepper, right? No, 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 Dr. Skipper, right? It's not Dr. Pepper, it's Dr. Skipper. Like when you, when you buy your, your sodas at Walmart and you grew up uh, without much, much financial security, you know, we called it Dr. Pepper, right? And then sometimes we'd have the occasional friend over and we'd offer him some soda when we happen to have it. And we'd be like, um, hey, did you want some Dr. Pepper? Yeah, thanks. And they drink the Dr. Pepper. Like, yeah, something's wrong with this. And then you feel, oh, right. it's, well, it's Dr. Skipper, you know, close, but not the real thing. And that's the kind of idea that's going on here. It's bread, but it's barley bread. It's food that a really poor person would have. So it's meager, but it's something. And Jesus does something with it. Okay, continue on with me now in verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. 
So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Okay, let me just pause there for a moment. This is a massive crowd. John goes out of his way to explain that there were 5,000 men, right? There were likely between 10 to 15,000 people because women and children included would, would be up to potentially 15,000 people. Okay, so this is a massive, massive crowd. And Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them, them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five parley loaves left by those who had eaten. And again, something that I can't get too into, but you and I would normally miss here is that John really intentionally uses language that has Psalm 23 in mind. Okay, if you remember a number of months ago, we walked through a short series where we preached through Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He provides, right? Even in these people's hunger, Jesus provides. They're, they're hungry and he's concerned and he cares. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He, what does he do? He causes me to lie down in green pastures. Okay, it says that the people sat down because the, in, in the grass. Now, depending on the time of year, the grass wouldn't always be there, right? Just like us in Tucson, we know something about that. Um, there, there wouldn't always be green grass covered hills here. But again, Jesus, the good shepherd, tells everyone to sit down. He lays them down, if you will, in green pastures, leading them beside still waters. He restores my soul, right? He prepares a banquet, a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Okay. Jesus is the Lord of the feast. This is language that will be used all throughout scripture. He's feeding and providing for his people. And what does he do with it? Does he just give enough? Does he just, no, he says more than anyone could want. Everyone until they're full, these little tiny fish and this little poor person's bread is enough to abundantly nourish and provide for up to 15,000 people, right? We see something. This is something we see God's character in and through Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's the creator, right? Remember that John began in John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, right? And, 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 and he oversaw all that was created. All things were created through him and for him. Okay. Jesus is the creator. He it's bread and water and fish and hunger and the need for nourishment is his idea. In the very beginning of Genesis, the beginning of all of scripture, God creates something out of nothing, right? Let there be light. It's hard for us to even wrap our minds around that, but he created a universe when there was not even the idea of what a universe or space or light or particles or time even, even existed. He created it. And he could have just stood back and kind of gotten, gotten the ball going and then stood back and let things you know, work out. But we see all throughout that he continues to make something from very little. The same God, Jesus, who created out of nothing here 
uses very small things to bring about great things. Let's just pause there for a moment. What would that look like for us to continue with the posture again as a church, Lord willing for the next 10 years, embracing the reality that we come with meager offerings, right? We come, we don't pretend at all that we've got our stuff all together, that we as a church, right? We don't even have a church, right? We don't even have a building. We have a church, right? We don't have a building. And we, there's so much we don't have, but God continues to work mightily. And it's not because we're so cool because we've got it all figured out. It's because that's what he's always done. That's who he is. That's who we're worshiping this morning together. He does great things. He provides for his people. But sadly, the crowds see that and do what you and I are tempted to do. They see Jesus doing great things and then they think, well, how can I use that for my agenda? Okay, pick up with me here in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, thank you for feeding us. We were starving and you provided for us. Well, let us, no, right? They went straight to, again, their agenda. They said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Look what the people did there. He has done great things. And we get so used to that, we presume upon it. We uh, so quickly go to, uh, I'm in control, to I've squeezed. We go from, Lord, I give my life to you, to how can I fit you into my life to make things better? How can I orient God in my life to increase every aspect of my life that ultimately serves me? We're so fickle. We so easily use Jesus for our own ends. And hear me now, church, we need to be, we need to tremble at the idea of forcing Jesus to accomplish our agendas, of creating Jesus in our image. We are so prone to do it. And I, I join you in this. And I want to pause for a moment and recognize that where our nation is right now, and has been over the last many years. And I would say has been not just our nation, the world. If you're a human, you have a, 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 a sin nature. Our propensity is to want to replace God. It is, is to say, um, we can't trust you. We, we want to do things uh, our way. We, and then again, we, we, we cloak it with a veneer of religion. And we say, oh, grace be to God, grace be to God. But we continue to try to use Jesus. And hear me, he wants nothing to do with it. All right, we're, we're, what does he do here? Is he honored? Oh, thanks guys. I'm glad that you want to make me king. And let me just, you know, thank you. You had good motives, good intentions. No, he pieces out. He goes to the mountain. He wants nothing to do with it. In Matthew chapter six, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're told that in that last day, this is Jesus speaking. He says, many will come and say, did we not do all these things in your name? Right, which I would just insert. Yeah, we, we slapped your name on it. Therefore, it's good. And what does Jesus say? Depart from me, for I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness or workers of evil. I never knew you. 
Okay, let me share with you a, a quote right now from author and pastor um, John Piper, who is not perfect. He said all kinds of different things all over the years and stuff. But I think on this subject of a fierce commitment and submission to Jesus, he's um, pretty spot on. And, and read this quote with me. It'll be up here, I believe, on the screen for you. And this is what he says. The enthusiasm these people have is not for who Jesus really is. This is so important for our day and for your life. People can have a great enthusiasm for Jesus, but the Jesus they're excited about is not the real biblical Jesus. It may be a morally exemplary Jesus or a socialist Jesus or a capitalist Jesus or an anti-Semitic Jesus, which is ironic since he was Jewish, or a white racist Jesus, or a revolutionary liberationist Jesus, or a counter-cultural cool Jesus, but not the whole Jesus, who in the end gives his life a ransom for sinners. And if your enthusiasm for Jesus is for a Jesus that doesn't exist, your enthusiasm is no honor to the real Jesus. He's not honored by that. He wants nothing to do with us trying to squeeze him or his name into our agendas. Again, we have seen this Last on, on Wednesday, we saw that happening place on Capitol Hill. Flags waving with Jesus's name on it. We have seen that throughout the last eight months. As John Piper, I think, fairly says, we've seen that from people out in the streets, taking up arms, right? Breaking things, vandalizing things and saying, in the name of Jesus, we are, we are doing this. We are, we are causing, we are, we are standing up, we're making, um, uh, we're making chaos right now. In Jesus' name, he wants nothing to do with that. As is said here, socialist Jesus, revolutionary Jesus, right? Whatever other kind of Jesus you can think of. And I want to pause again for a minute and just acknowledge, have you done that? I have. I have tendencies to justify myself by thinking, oh, Jesus really relates with me. He was an underdog too. So he's got a little chip on his shoulder and he's kind of feisty and fiery and he, you know, gets mad at people in traffic and he does this and that. Cause you know, he, he was, it's like, no, that's, does, did Jesus come to you and call you to faith in him? And does he restore you? Does he love you? Does he see you? Yes, but he transforms you. He transforms me. He will not be used. And that now informs what happens in this next section that we'll briefly look at where Jesus walks on water. Pick up with me again now in verse, uh, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and they got into a boat and they started across the sea, of, uh, across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles. So pause there for a moment. Have you ever rowed three or four miles? I never have. Sorry, rowed, like row, Michael, row your boat ashore. Um, I've never rowed. I've tried to row at like maybe a mile or less. It's exhausting. 
And let's acknowledge here, John puts this in there because remember, these guys went away to get a vacation because they were already so weary and so tired. Church, can we not relate with that? Like eight months after going to an online service, out of the blue, we didn't expect to have to do it again, right? They're exhausted, they're weary, they're tired, they're in the boat. But, but doesn't God sometimes need to weary us out, tire us out in order to see who he really is and what he's really doing? Sometimes when we have it all together, when you know, our, our eyes are on straight and we've got it all figured out, we, we, we miss him, we replace him. We think it's up because of good things that we've done but they're exhausted, they're tired, this massive storm comes up and then look what happens. Um, Keep going, picking up with me here. So they rode about three or four miles. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. Okay, underline that or pause there for a moment and recognize where their fear comes. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him in to the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So there's so much there and I can't unpack all of it. One of them, I just want to acknowledge, it's kind of interesting that we don't normally see is all of a sudden Jesus gets in the boat and then it transports to land. All right, so that's interesting. Okay, all of a sudden that he hops in the boat and boom, they're like, whoa, all right, we're now on land. Okay, so that's, that's interesting. And John doesn't give a great commentary. He just notes that. So I just want to note it as well. And then something else though here that's important is the people were afraid. His disciples, right? They knew Jesus. They traveled with Jesus. They laughed with him. They joked with him. I'll just be straight here. I don't mean to be irreverent. They probably heard him pass gas and likewise, and they joked with each other. They knew him. But all of a sudden they're afraid. Why are they afraid? Because, and I often I'd want to insert, oh, because this great storm and all this stuff. No, they're afraid because they see Jesus walking on water. His authority terrifies them. Would that that be the case for us? We sometimes get so familiar with Jesus. He's good. He provides. He's my homeboy. I can go to him. I can cry to him. He's comforting. And yet he is all powerful. He created water, okay? It's not religion versus science. That always happens or, or, or Jesus versus science. No, he created science, okay? Um, uh, solid gas and liquid is his idea. And yet he's above the laws of science that he created. He's now walking on something that you're usually not able to walk on. He's walking on a liquid as though it were a solid. When he says, do not be afraid, it is I, He's actually saying, I am who I am. He's giving the name of God. He is establishing and asserting his power, his deity. And his disciples are afraid. And again, church, next week, we're going to look at the implications, the what now, because it's a further unpacking of this temptation to force Jesus into our image to squeeze him into our life, to use him to accomplish our agenda. But he loves us too much to do that. And it's a little scary. Okay, our, our prayer for us as a church going forward is that we will fully submit to Jesus. Is he safe? Is it gonna be easy? No, it's probably gonna be a little scary 
but he loves us too much to allow us to, to force him into some other idea, to try to slap upon him a kingship that isn't his real authoritative kingship. He is good. He provides. He provides abundantly. He takes our meager offerings and multiplies it 10, 100, 5,000, 15,000 fold. He does great things, but he is in authority. We are not. It's like C.S. Lewis says in one of his books in the Chronicles of Narnia, someone is asked about or asks about Aslan, the Christ figure, this lion. And they say, a lion, is he safe? And the response is, no, 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 he's not safe. He's good. He provides, but he's not safe. You can't tame him. He is wild. He will do his will. Amen. If you're not saying amen right now, I, you're, you're, the walls will, the rocks will cry out. Amen. Jesus is good. He provides and he is authoritative. He is all powerful. Let's pray and respond to him. Dear Lord, we do um, respond to you as you truly are, as you have revealed yourself to be. Lord, right now in our time of, of response, I, I hope there's a sense of excitement and anticipation and hope, but I also expect there's probably some element of confession, some heart searching that we need to do, or some confession for where we've tried to water you down. We've tried to squeeze you into some other agenda, the socialist Jesus, the cool Jesus, whatever it might be. But Lord, right now we respond to you as you have revealed yourself to be, as you truly are the one who gave his life for us, the one who has all power, but used it to lay himself down. The one who was crucified, who raised from the dead, who right now sits authoritatively, powerfully on the throne. Lord Jesus, we look to you. We submit to you. We respond to you in your name. Amen.